You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. To acknowledge eating in an idol temple will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding your conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul felt full freedom to eat this stuff. There was nothing hindering him from doing that. He saw no obligation to, to withhold himself from this food, except for the fact that it would offend people. So it was the offense factor. He says, look, if it's going to offend somebody, I just won't ever do it. I'm free to do it, but I'm going to give up that freedom if it's offensive to somebody. Because if somebody sees you doing it, somebody in your life views you as a mature Christian, they want to follow you as you follow Christ. But their conscience keeps them from doing this. Their conscience says, you know what, like I was raised and grew up in a context where drinking alcohol was wrong for a Christian. I can't do it. My conscience won't allow me to do it. But I see so-and-so doing it, and so-and-so invites me over to their house, and they're doing it. So I'm going to jump in and do it because I'm hearing from Scripture that I should see it as okay, but my conscience hasn't caught up with my, with my mind and with my theology yet. We cause people to violate their conscience, and Paul said that's a very scary place to be in. He says, don't violate your conscience. Because if you violate it in little things, it'll lead you to violate it in bigger things. So Paul's very concerned about preserving the conscience of the weaker brother. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. All of Paul's activity was defined and dictated by the gospel. What he chose to do, what he chose not to do. What he chose to participate in, what he chose not to participate in, was all shaped and defined by the gospel and whether he believed that the activity would help advance the gospel or not. It had nothing to do with his personal preferences, feelings, wants, and desires. It was all shaped on the gospel and whether it would help advance the gospel. So our first obligation is to show patience and bear with the weak, to give up activities potentially that we want to engage in because we see freedom in it for the sake of not being offensive. The second obligation is don't please yourself. He says, you have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The obligation, number two, is don't please self. Instead, we're called to please our neighbor. Verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We're called to please our neighbor. We're called to build our neighbor up. In order to do that, it takes thought. It takes thought and meditation on what will be good for my neighbor, what will be good for my friend, what will be good for others that uh, are part of our church. It takes thought before you can really act this out. The Christian life centers on strengthening others. We're called constantly in the New Testament to strengthen other people, to build them up. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, that we don't value our own needs above the needs of others, that we take into account the needs of others, that we seek to serve others versus serving ourselves. 
These are the obligations that Paul places upon the strong believer, the one who sees freedom in these activities. In your notes, some additional considerations. These are some things that we didn't hit last week that I wanted to challenge you with. Again, we're not debating whether alcohol is okay or not okay. We're not, we're not debating about whether tattoos are okay or not okay. Tobacco use is okay or not okay. We're saying that there are people that will say those things are okay. We're saying that people will say that they're not okay. What we're trying to determine is, should we do these things? Not can we do these things, but should we do these things? So in considering how we bear with the weak, we don't please ourselves, there's some other factors that we can consider. First of all, the neighbor factor. Will this activity offend a fellow Christian? Will this be offensive to somebody? Will this offend another Christian? The missional factor. Will this activity offend a non-Christian? Will this activity offend a non-Christian? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we live in a, in a culture and a setting that's changed a lot over the past 10, 15 years. But we still live in a setting where oftentimes the unbeliever believes that Christians don't get tattoos, they don't use tobacco, and they don't drink alcohol. That's how people were raised in this area. That's what people think about Christianity. And there's a lot of non-Christians that believe those regulations and demands are still on Christians. And for some non-Christians, it's offensive to see a Christian doing these things because to them, it, it discredits everything that they thought you stood for. Now, is that right knowledge? No. Again, we're not debating, can we do these things? We're saying that we can. Paul says the strong position is the right position. But culture, context, companionship, who's with you, has to be considered in helping you determine, should I do these things? Should I do these things? And, and our cultural setting has to be considered. Should I engage in this activity from a missional standpoint? Or will I offend potentially somebody who's a non-believer? Am I going to discredit the gospel because this person believes this is worldly activity? Will it discredit my message? The third factor is the master factor. Will this activity cause me to be enslaved? Will this activity cause me to be enslaved? 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 highlights the qualifications of an elder and a deacon. And what we would also say a deaconess, a female deacon. These are qualifications of people that are in leadership in a church. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble path. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Get down to verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. 
you continue to read through that, what you find is that maturity in the church is people who are driven by the Spirit and not their desires of the flesh. Even desires that can be justified and can be okay. They're not given into alcohol in such a way that it consumes them, causes to be drunk, causes them to be addicted to it. It's a master factor. We have to factor that into determining, should I engage in this activity or not? Is there the possibility that I'm going to be addicted to it? Addicted in such a way that I can't get out of it. Two of the three that we highlight, and well, actually three of the three, because I know people that are addicted to getting tattoos. That sounds odd and sounds weird, but there are some people that once they start, they have a hard time stopping. They just continue to go back to the tattoo parlor where they, 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 they're obsessed with it. Alcohol and, and tobacco are probably ones that we've, uh, all of us have probably experienced at some level or another in our family situations. Maybe we've seen people who have been mastered by these things. Now again, that doesn't prohibit people that can use these things responsibly from doing so, but that has to be considered. Am I opening myself up to something that is going to dominate me, that is going to um, master me? Because the fact is, is that these activities, we have to admit, possess objective ability, right? There are so many people that are addicted to tobacco, addicted to alcohol, that can't get out of it. So if you're in that situation where you're saying, hey, I don't use tobacco, I don't use alcohol, but I see freedom in that, so I'm trying to determine am I going to make that a part of my life now, that has to be a consideration. Am I opening myself up to something that I won't be able to control down the road? The master factor. Next, the health factor. Will this activity cause me immediate harm? Will this activity cause me immediate harm? Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 is a passage that the weak believer will constantly go to to highlight why we shouldn't smoke and drink. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Right? So the weak believer loves to draw this passage out and say, look, your body's a temple. Don't decorate it with tattoos. Don't uh, abuse it and don't damage it because smoking's bad for you, alcohol's bad for you, it'll kill you. So don't do those things. It's wrong for a Christian to do those things because your body's a temple. And I used, to, I used to use that passage in that way. When I was in the weaker setting, I used to use that passage and cling to that passage and, and justify why we don't do those things with that passage. But then I got real convicted about thinking about other things that I do that aren't healthy. Right? Like, there are foods that we eat in the South that generally are not healthy. And yet we don't say, don't eat fried chicken because it's bad for you. It raises your cholesterol. Right? The abuse of fried chicken would be a bad thing. It's going to damage you and cause harm to you and it could potentially kill you, right, if that became your diet. You, some of you seen the documentary where the guy just committed to eating McDonald's every meal for a month or whatever it was. And he talked about all the changes that happened to him physically, how damaging it was to him. Anything that's abused can damage the temple. Anything that's abused can harm our body. So that's why I clarified it by saying, does this cause immediate harm? Does it cause immediate harm? Because if you smoke a cigar four times a year, to my knowledge, you're not in danger of getting lung cancer. To my knowledge, I may be completely wrong about that, and if I am, you can correct me afterwards. But to my knowledge, you're not going to destroy your liver by drinking a few times a year. 
in the same way that you're not going to completely kill yourself by eating fried chicken a few times a year, maybe more than a few times a year, right? So be careful about using this passage to justify and, and to impose why somebody else shouldn't do something. Consider it more from the context of immediate. Does this cause immediate consequences, immediate harm potentially to my health? And then lastly, the legal factor, which we touched on a little bit last week. Will this activity cause me to violate the law? Will this activity cause me to violate the law? And I would throw in just from a consideration of bearing with the weak to not participate in activity around people that legally can't participate with you. It's just discouraging, right? It's discouraging to be in an environment where you're hanging out with people and they're doing things that legally you can't do. Be the strong, mature believer in that setting and say, hey, we've got people that can't do this legally. Let's not do it. We don't have to do it. We're not mastered by it. It's a freedom. It's a privilege. But it's not a necessity. Because that makes it very difficult and it becomes very tempting for somebody to violate the law the police are never going to bust down your door and find out that you've drunk alcohol with a group of friends because you were 19 and everybody else was 22, probably. Right? You could probably get away with that and nobody would find out. But we want to be above reproach, right? Like, are the law of our land, which we've already covered in Romans, submit to the government, submit to what the government says, obey your leaders, don't put somebody in a situation where they have to fight against the temptation to participate in something that legally they can't do. The legal factors. Some implications from this. How do we know who the weak and the strong are? Because that, that's where it becomes real difficult, right? Like, some of us are weak, some of us are strong in here. Odds are we don't know who's who. So how do we, how do I bear with somebody that's weak if I don't know that they're weak? How do I know I'm offending them if I invite them over and think they're strong, but they're not? So I invite them over and I've got beer that I want to pass out to them and they walk in and they're automatically offended by it because they're the weak believer. How do, how do we differentiate between the two? I confess I don't necessarily have an answer to this yet. I think it starts with us both being honest with each other when the issue comes up. I think the weak person has to get to a point where they're okay with being the weak person. Because that's the, that's probably the position that presents the most, um, Potential for embarrassment, I guess. Like if we're already highlighting the fact that the strong position is the right position, then it, it, it seems difficult to then admit, hey, I'm in the wrong, but I just want everybody to know that I'm in the wrong. And, and I need you to understand that I'm in the wrong and, and serve me in, in my wrongness. That's hard to admit, right? Like nobody wants to be the one that stands up and says, hey, alcohol offends me, tobacco offends me, this offends me, this offends me. Please don't do these things around me. But in order for us to be faithful and unified, it, it, I think it necessitates us coming to grips with the positions that we're in and being okay with open dialogue about it. I think that's how we can grow as a church in this area. I think it's how we can be strengthened in this area. It's for us to admit where we are when we have conversations about it. Um, and the weak certainly being okay with being weak. I think it's also important, too, that um, in our conversations that we make sure that it's not, that we make sure in talking with people that they don't view it as a right and wrong issue versus a strong and weak issue. Remember we talked about the fact, Paul is not 
tolerating legalism. Because legalism is a mindset that you have to do these things to be a Christian. Remember, they were imposing circumcision in the early church. And it became wrong if you were a Gentile and you didn't get circumcised. You couldn't, you couldn't really be a Christian in their mind. You couldn't really be right with God unless you had done these things. It's important for us to remember this is a strong and weak issue, not a right and wrong issue. So I think some questions that we need to kind of work through as a church is how do the weak uh, make themselves known? Um, what would be offensive to the weak? What does offending look like? And how do you know when you're offending somebody? Any thoughts on this that maybe can help shed some light on how to, to grow in this area of the church? Let me kind of read through those questions again. And you don't have to be answering them because you're the weak person, but just any thoughts or feedback that we can get in this area that might be beneficial as a whole. Maybe think like a weak person or think like you used to think when you were a weak person. So what I'm trying to get at is you answering this question right now does not make you the weak person, okay? Um, how, would the, how do the weak make themselves known? Uh, what's offensive to the weak? What does offending somebody look like? How do you know when you're offending somebody? How do we become responsible in this area of liberty and not using our liberty in a way that offends? Any thoughts or feedback that maybe you had in thinking through from last week with Roman 14? The weak can just get a tattoo that says I'm weak. <laughs> yep. Does that work? No. Yeah, that might work. How do you say that when you get I'm thinking about a church situation, like a church get-together. Because of Paul's writing here, you're, you're going to know there are strong and there are weak present. But I think any kind of church gathering, I think you really do have to be cautious. Because you're going to know there's going to be some weak in the group. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. In other words, you wouldn't have a gathering where you bring a keg of beer. Because that mm-hmm. really might, there's going to be some weak person, maybe. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think. I know when, that didn't answer your question at all, but. I'll no, but that does give that does give proper mindset for the strong. That the bigger the company, probably the less activity. Right. Like the bigger the company that you're going to be in, it probably necessitates that there be less of these activities being thrown out there. So yeah, we're having a big church gathering. Um, we're not going to post on the city, bring this, you know, bring your watermelon, bring your chicken, and bring your beer. We're just not, because there are going to be weaker brothers there that will be offended by that. Uh, so the larger the company probably necessitates the lesser of the activity. Um, other thoughts, feedback about how to better understand the situation and grow in this situation. What do you think about me bringing the beer to your house? Like, he he would get to know where I stand on that through getting to know me. So I wouldn't be just like even a practical having a conversation to just even randomly bring up, hey, you know, I'm here's how I feel about beer. How do you feel about it? I don't even think that that would even be. Yeah, yeah, it's so probably not good to. Through, I think you would get that through knowing and doing life together. Yeah. It's probably not good to engage in activities that you're okay with that you either know the other person isn't okay with or you're not sure at their house, right? Like, 
So I don't bring a cigar over to your house and say, hey, do you want to go out back and smoke a cigar? I brought two. If I've never seen you smoke a cigar, I've never talked to you about cigars, I don't bring alcohol over to your house probably and say, hey, uh, you know, Jeff need to bring uh, something over, so this is what I chose to bring kind of thing. Those types of activities are, are far more um, appropriate in your setting, in your home, okay? So you invite somebody over to your house, it's still probably not appropriate to bust out the wine bottle and say, what do you think about this? You know, like, cats out of the bag now, right here, or cats out of the hat, right? No. Yeah. I drink alcohol, what do you think about it, right? Like, there needs to be sensitive, appropriate conversation with somebody to kind of find out where they fall in that category. Um, this uh, sermon series offers, uh, offers the opportunity to engage in this type of activity and not being awkward. Hey, so what do you think about what we've been learning? Where, where do you stand on alcohol? Hey, I, I feel pretty free in that. Hey, me too. Hey, someone in my house, you know, uh, <laughs> me and my wife love to drink, drink wine with our dinner and we just got some. Yeah. That's, that's a far more sensitive approach to the issue versus um, learning by experience in the way of, hey, if I find out that I'm offending you, then I'll stop. It's being proactive to say, I don't want to offend you, so let me go to great lengths to make sure that you're not going to be offended, and let me figure out where you stand on some of these issues before I even think about engaging in this activity with you. What are some other thoughts on this, Anna? As Sarah was talking and you were talking about, you know, you specifically as a pastor of a church, I mean, how do you feel about being in uh, the liquor store with your whatever or, you know, at Kroger with your six-pack or 12-pack? I mean, how, how does that present you to the world at large or, or any of us, not just you, but any of us as we're going through the line and then possibly somebody that we've seen in the grocery store ends up here and they're like, <gasps> You know, I, I, how do you, in the world at large, I'm not just talking about in your home, but you have to get it from somewhere to your home. You have to have gone somewhere with a purpose. I'm just wondering. Yeah, and I've never, I mean, I told you guys last week, I've never drank anything, so I've never obviously purchased anything. But that, that, is, that, that is a consideration that has to be taken in. Uh, what's the appropriate way to even obtain some of this stuff without being offensive, potentially? Um, I mean, I've bumped into church members, not here, but in previous churches, in the grocery store and you see something in a buggy and you're, you're immediately thinking, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, now, again, where I'm at theologically with this and where I'm at doctrinally, um, I see liberty in these areas, I just don't engage in these activities, right? So, so I always classify myself in the strong category, but in the category where I've just chosen not to do them. Um, but that is a big consideration is what, what will be offensive? Is it, um, is it something that I'm just going to do in my house versus ordering in a restaurant where, where more, than, more often than not you do end up running into somebody that you, that you know? Those are considerations that you as a single person have to work through, but you and your husband or wife would have to work through as well. How open are we okay with being in these areas knowing that it is offensive to some people? Um, and so that, that's, that I don't have an answer for you as to right or wrong, Anna, but that's something that has to be considered with the missional factor. What will this do to, to my neighbor, to the unbelievers that see me? Do I discredit myself at all? Um, and that's something that we'll have people on both sides of the issue on probably. Some would say, for that sake alone, I'm not going to drink alcohol because I, I don't want people seeing me purchase it. Others would say, hey, I'm going to do this. 
I'm going to do it discreetly. I'm going to do it in a non-boastful way and enjoy this activity. Other thoughts that might be helpful for us to share with each other. I think you can... The offense thing, when you think about that, I think you have to be very careful because you can offend somebody not drinking, but just them realizing that you occasionally drink. So I think we have to be super, super sensitive <clears throat> around each other, not to cause each other to stumble, or because just you know, somebody just finding out that you drink, whether you do it in front of them or not, might be offensive to somebody. So I think you just have to be super sensitive about it. Yeah, and you have to be careful too, because we could go to the extreme with this. Of, I'm going to let other people dictate everything that I do, and I always feel afraid that I'm going to offend somebody. Um, I think it's important, too, to note that it's not offensive to drink alcohol around somebody that doesn't drink if they're not offended by it. So it's not that I have to be fearful of drinking around somebody that doesn't drink. It's more of the offending factor. And only the weak could really describe what uh, is offensive to them about it or what causes them to potentially stumble. So it's, uh, it's a given that, that we're going to disagree on these issues within our church. Um, and so it's not a, a factor where somebody's supposed to just completely give it up because somebody else disagrees with it. That offensive factor is more the, the issue. Um, and so somebody has to be honest about what's offending them about it and why that's offending to them about it as well. I can speak to that a little bit. Um, I think you touched on it last week, the idea of if I see someone or if I saw, because when I went to college, I was very, 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 closed off and conservative in every manner. And if I knew someone drank or if I saw them drinking, I immediately assumed X, Y, and Z that they would end up drunk and homeless and high and all this stuff. <laughs> and it just went together in my head. If I knew that they drank, I avoided their company. If I knew that people were going to be drinking, I avoided any sort of contact in any sort of area because I just assumed that that's exactly where it would go and that I become entangled in that and it would just be as far as it could. I also was not um, shy about saying that. I didn't, I wasn't offended or anything about telling people how I felt, but that could be just a personality thing that I was out there with my, with my judgment. It would be super helpful if you just posted on the city things that offend you so we can not do it around people. I'm saying I was. No, I'm saying that would be great, because not everybody would, would probably feel comfortable to do that. Um, it probably is it's more of a personality thing. Others are going to feel more reserved in that area and probably aren't going to be as, as forthcoming, um, even as helpful as that would be. Is that in the profile area? <laughs> yeah, we just, yeah, it could be in the profile. You're on this, 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 and this. I'm glad you brought up, though, that that does not necessarily mean you're the stronger one. Because the stronger brother has so much more to do than whether you do certain activities or not. So, so I'm glad you brought that up, Melinda. But um, as coming from the weak point to, I mean, of where I used to be very judgmental, which I think that is what Sarah was trying to say, and then looking at strict scripture, like I said last week, and saying, okay, there's really nothing, God does not say you cannot drink. You know, we're not supposed to get drunk or do anything. Like you said, eat fried chicken do, mm-hmm. you know, access, excess. But I think it's more of a judgment thing. You know, we judge each other based on what we do. And we're not ever supposed to do that in any context, right. really. And um, I think I have gotten to the point, like I said, you know, because it took me a while to get there, 
where I have chosen not to, like you said, I have chosen not to drink, but to let people know that is my choice, but that does not mean I'm judging you. I understand you are perfectly free to do that. And I think it's getting to a point where you don't judge and you realize that it's scripturally, it's okay. Right. But you may decide not to for your own personal reasons, and that doesn't mean you're the weaker brother either. Right. Yeah, this is, this is good dialogue, and, and this is something that could definitely continue in the city as well, just kind of posting it and feeding off of each other. I know for me, I, I feel freedom in the area of alcohol. I've chosen not to engage in alcohol. I'm totally fine with being around people that drink alcohol. Defining that as I'm a, I, I put myself around people that I consider spiritually mature that drink alcohol. Now, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time with people that just loosely drink alcohol and that's reflective off their loose living. I mean, it's not, I just hang out with drunk people all the time. But the people that I know that are, that are drinking alcohol are also very spiritually mature people that love the gospel, love Christ. I'm okay with being around them. I will tell you that it would be offensive for them to bring it around my children. I, I don't want people drinking alcohol around my kids. Um, I don't want my kids being exposed to it. Um, and it's it potentially causing a stumbling block for them down the road. Um, and so I want to protect my kids from it. So for me, it would be offensive for some of this activity to be done around my children. And I would want people to respect that in our church and not do those activities around my kids. Um, so that's kind of, that's hopefully some stuff to kind of get the conversation started about how to flesh this out within our church context. Um, again, the strong believers are one who who sees freedom in things, but willingly doesn't do things for the sake of not offending. That's what Paul's calling the strong believer to. Now, strong must act like Christ. Christ sets the ultimate example here in Romans 15. Um, he bears uh, with our weaknesses. He takes our infirmities. He um, sought to please, or not please us, but serve us in coming to this earth versus pleasing himself. We see that pattern in Philippians 2. Um, See, in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Second thing in your notes here, how do we strive for this unity? The strong have to act like Christ. For, for us to be unified, strong believers in here have to be willing to give up freedoms to serve the weaker brother in our church. Secondly, both must be shaped by Scripture. The strong and the weak have to be shaped by Scripture if we're going to be unified. If there's going to be unity and sovereign hope, it necessitates that the Word is shaping us, shaping our thoughts, shaping our belief, shaping our behavior. What we find about, we, we, we learn some things about Scripture here in this passage. Number one, Scripture is contemporary in nature. Scripture is contemporary in nature. Look what Paul says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's referencing the Old Testament. He's referencing it in the New Testament. So he's saying things that were previously written under the Old Covenant, because Paul's a New Covenant believer, things that were written in the Old Covenant, they were written for our instruction. So it wasn't just for the people of the Old Testament. It was also for us. 
that still rings true today for us as, as New Testament believers. What was written in the days of old, Old Testament and New Testament, has relevance for us as believers today. Has relevance for us today. Now we have to determine what was the original intent, the original meaning, the original context, because it did have that. It was written in a certain time, in a certain culture, so it has a certain meaning for that time. But it still has relevance for us today. Still has relevance. It's contemporary. It's contemporary in nature. It still has relevance for us today. Secondly, Scripture is Christological in its focus. It's Christological in its focus. The passage that, that Paul quotes here, uh, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, is a psalm by David. It's not a direct reference to Christ in the original context. David's just writing about things that he's experiencing. But Paul draws on that and says, hey, this is about Christ. Remember, Jesus pulls aside the people after the resurrection and, and expounds to them how the Old Testament points to him. How everything in the Old Testament is about him. So what we have to remember is that Scripture is all about Christ. And that helps us be unified because we're unified in Christ. It's Christological in focus. Third, it's practical in its purpose. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Bible instructs us, it inspires us, and it encourages us. It instructs us, it inspires us, it encourages us. It inspires us through the endurance aspect. It encourages us towards hope. Which applies to us that the more we're in the Word, the more we're going to hope in Jesus coming back. The more right our perspective is going to be about Christ coming back. Fourthly, Scripture is divine in its origin. It's divine in its origin. What do I mean by that? Check, check out what, what Paul says about Scripture and then about God. He says that through endurance and through encouragement we might have hope. How do we get that? Through Scripture. Then verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony. It's divine. It's not some man that wrote down some thoughts that he had about God. God's word comes from God. He's the source of the endurance. He's the source of encouragement that we gain from Scripture. The hope that we get from it is also contained in God. It says down in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. It's divine in origin. The things that we reap from Scripture are things that we ultimately reap from God. Paul makes that connection for us. Endurance, encouragement, hope. It comes from Scripture, but it's ultimately a gift by God's grace to us from Him. Number five, Scripture is satisfying in this reward. It's satisfying in reward. He tells us in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing how do we believe? We have to know truth to believe in. How do we get truth? From God's word. So we trust in truth. Our faith increases the more truth we have to trust in. That's the fruit, the reward that comes from being in God's word. The joy and the peace that's described there. Joy in our circumstances. Peace in our circumstances. Our perspective is aligned with scripture. And if we're all doing that faithfully, if everybody in here is in the word, remember we, we, we define that personally, what does it look like for me to be in the word? But if we're all faithfully pursuing being in the word, 
How much more unified are we going to be if we come in here in our gathering times on Sundays, C groups, accountability groups, every time that we gather, how much more unified are we going to be if we come already having been in the Word? The Word unites us. It unites us because it's about Christ, and we are in Christ if we're believers. The way we gain unity as a church family is by being in the Word. It's a fruit, it's a reward that's given to us. Some implications from this. A church that is committed to unity lives in the Word. A church that is committed to unity lives in the Word. We must be like-minded so that we celebrate the same thing. The only way that we're going to be unified is is if we choose something to be unified around, right? We have to have something in common. And we come from diverse backgrounds and diverse interests, and, and everything else may be different about us. But when we come together as a church, the unity that we find is, is rooted in God's Word. And if we're in God's Word, then we have something to unify us when we come together. A church that is committed to unity glorifies God. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of unity there. It pictures us as one. One church glorifying God together. The welcoming that we share with others is based on being welcomed by Christ. What we find here is that worship is ultimately the aim of our salvation. God desires that we are glorifying Him together, worshiping Him together. Next, the church that is committed to unity prays for unity. It prays for unity. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That has to be a prayer by Paul there. He's, he's, he's praying this over them. May this happen to you. This doesn't just happen without our prayerful uh, engagement for it. We have to pray for unity as a church if we're going to experience this deep level of unity that's being described here. Because we come with differences. We come with different opinions, different perspectives on things. And yet God wants us to worship as one body. So the question that I'm kind of asking myself is, is would our church be described as a welcoming church? People that come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different opinions. Are we a welcoming church? Do we embrace people that come in here? Do people feel welcomed when they come here? Are we that type of church? Are we so unified that, that we're able to bring in more people because we desire more unity? Or are we lacking in that area? Is that an area of application that needs to be addressed by our church? We're going to talk more about that in a minute. How does the church strive for unity? The strong act like Christ, both must be shaped by Scripture. Roman numeral 2. How does the church complete the commission? How does the church complete the commission? Paul changes, changes directions here in a sense in verse 14 because he really begins to start to wrap up this letter. Um, so verse 14 here in chapter 15 uh, could probably all be grouped in with chapter 16 because it's kind of his wrap up. And he starts highlighting more 
this is what's going to happen, this is what I'm planning to do, so it becomes more of a planning process. Here's what's happening, here's what's going on. How does the church complete the commission? He begins to really uh, describe his missional plans. Uh, he begins to describe what he's planning to do uh, with his mission endeavors. Here's, here's what I've done, here's where I'm planning to go. So 14 through the rest of this chapter is very missional in its feel. It's a lot of missionary, church-sending discussion that's happening. And so it drew my attention as I was studying this passage is how does our church fit into the plan? How does our church fit into the Great Commission and completing the Great Commission? First, in your notes here, the church must prioritize the word. Not to be a broken record, but that's what Paul's saying here. We have to live in the Word if we're going to be unified, and we have to live in the Word if we're going to see the Great Commission fulfilled. Look what Paul highlights here in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He starts to highlight the maturity of this church, and I don't think we should discount the fact that he's going to ask them for support. He sees them as a mature church and sees them as somebody that can partner with him in his gospel, in his missionary endeavors. He highlights their maturity. He sees them as a piece that can play a huge role in reaching Spain with the gospel. So this gives us some principles that we can pull out of here. In looking at this church in Rome, what we need to be as a church here at Sovereign Hope. A church that wins the world must be conforming to Christ. A church that wins the world must be conforming to Christ. He says, I know you guys, you're full of goodness. This Greek term can also be translated kindness. You're full of goodness. You're full of kindness. There is sanctification that has happened in these people. They're good people. Not good in the sense that we talk about good works getting into heaven. But you know those people in your life that you would just consider genuinely good people. The type of people you want to be around, the type of people that are pursuing Christ. I mean, they're just genuinely good people. Paul says, I know you guys, you're full of goodness, you're full of kindness. If we're going to be the type of church that Rome was, or in Rome, if we're going to be the type of church that wins the world for Christ, we have to be conforming to Christ as a church. Secondly, a church that wins the world must be saturated with the word. We must be saturated with the word. He says, I know you're full of knowledge. You're full of knowledge. He's going to tell us here in a minute that everything that he's described in the book of Romans, he doesn't view it as new material for these people. He says, I already know you have this knowledge. You guys are full of knowledge. You're mature from a knowledge standpoint. Doctrinally, you have it. Theologically, you are sound. You are students of the word. You have, you have devoted yourselves to knowing Christ in his word. If we're going to be a church that wins the world for Christ, we have to be saturated with the word, full of knowledge. Thirdly, a church that wins the world must be instructing others. And that's where it starts to become more difficult. He says you're full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. Church that wins the world must be instructing others. This 
takes the focus off of you and puts it back on other people. Your Bible study, your Bible study is not just for you. It's so that you can be equipped to disciple others. These sermons on Sunday, they're not just for you. They're so you can instruct others. The selfish Christianity says, what, what do I get? What do I get from my time in the Word? What do I get from my time at Sunday church? What do I get? Am I growing? Am I learning new things? The church that wins the world must be instructing others. Acts 18. Priscilla and Aquila, we've already talked at the very beginning of Romans, how these, these two, this married couple, spent time in Rome. Acts 18, 26, so they're a product, they're a, they're a tangible example for what he means by this. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, Apollos, get used to that name, because I want to name my next son Apollos. So he's going to start spelling that out there, so everybody gets used to it, it's not like a normal name. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. That's a great definition of who this guy is. That's why I think it's a great name for my son, Apollos, a man who is competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So this guy, this guy's got it, right? Like he's not like a an immature believer that just starts spouting off at the mouth. This man is eloquent. This man is competent. This man is mature in the scriptures. So he began to spoke boldly in the temple, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. These are two people that were part of this church at Rome at some point. They were able to instruct others. Not just baby Christians, but mature Christians. They were so committed to the word that when a man came into the synagogue to teach, they were able to pull him inside and give him better perspective about Christ. Full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to instruct others. The instructing others that we probably still have a lot to grow in as a church family, if we're being honest. We've got a lot of good people here. And, and we have a lot of knowledge. Because most of us have been together for a long time, and we've spent a lot of time in the Word. So we're not lacking in knowledge. But where we still have areas to grow, I believe, in is in the ability to instruct others. The willingness to instruct others. The desire to instruct others. Fourth thing here, a church that wins the world must be yielding to reminders. Must be yielding to reminders. What do I mean by that? Look what Paul says. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me. There's a couple passages you can jot down. We won't take the time to look at them for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Hebrews 2, 1. 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 3. These are all passages that highlight authors and their self-awareness that I'm not giving you new material. I'm just reminding you of old material. 
be really leery of somebody who says they're leaving a church because they don't feel like they're learning anything new. It's not about you learning things new. The New Testament author said there's a lot of times where you need to be reminded of the old. Why move on to something new if we're still struggling with the old and applying the old? Paul says, I'm not giving you new material here. I'm just reminding you of things that you need to know. Things that you need to know. Things that you haven't thought about in a while. It's not new stuff. It's just, hey, I haven't thought about that in a while. Stuff. The church that wins the world must be yielded to reminders. What I mean by that is we don't come to C groups, to Sunday morning church, always expecting to hear something completely new, something that we've never learned before. We'll be dissatisfied with any church that we go to if that's our expectation. The church that wins the world recognizes Sometimes I just need to be reminded of stuff. It doesn't have to be new stuff, just old stuff that I need to be thinking more accurately about. Next here in your notes, the church must strategize the world. We prioritize the word. We strategize the world. Paul begins to give us insight about his strategy. It's convicting when you start reading about it. He says, At some points I've written to you very boldly, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Skipping down to verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He then begins to highlight how he's going to Jerusalem first to bring money to them that other churches have collected. And in verse 30, he asks for an appeal to prayer. I want to give you a few things here about how we strategize to reach the world. Number one, the first thing there, the plan must be driven by the gospel. The plan must be driven by the gospel. Everything that we do missionally has to be some way tied to the gospel. It's not about helping people live more comfortably here on this earth. If our efforts do not get back around to the gospel at some point, then we're failing people with any outreach or any missional efforts that we have. It's got to be driven by the gospel. Secondly, the plan must be focused on obedience. Paul says he's not just concerned about sharing the gospel, communicating the gospel. He's concerned about the Gentiles obeying the gospel. So he's thinking longer term. It's not just I'm going to be faithful to share the gospel and see people convert to the gospel. I want to lead them to obedience. Sanctification. Paul was an evangelist, but he wasn't the type that just blew into town and blew out of town real fast. Got people saved and then peaced out. He stayed. He discipled. He led people to obedience. Plan must be prioritized based on need. It's driven by the gospel. It's focused on obedience. It's prioritized based on need. What's convicting here for me? And it can be just as convicting for you even if you're not in pastoral leadership. 
He says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Alarachium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this area because I have completed my mission. And I need to go somewhere else because there are people that need to hear the gospel that aren't hearing it. And the people here have heard the gospel. That's convicting to me because I want to be in a state, and me and Will were having this conversation yesterday. I want to be in a state where if God wants to move me, wants to move me from my job, wants to move me from my neighborhood, or on a bigger scale, wants to move me from Sonoy, that I can leave confidently saying, hey, time to go because I've completed my mission here. People have heard the gospel. I need to go somewhere else so they can hear the gospel. But if you're like me, most of us would leave those settings with regret. And more people needed to hear this. I wasn't very faithful with the gospel in my neighborhood. There's still people that I don't know their names in my neighborhood. People that at work that I knew I should have had a conversation with and I haven't. And I've got two weeks left, so I'm trying to speed it up real quick and get my mission done. Paul says, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I've got, I've got other places to go that need to hear the gospel. I have completed my mission. Now, does that mean that everybody from Jerusalem to this other city heard the gospel from Paul? No. No, it doesn't mean that. What I do believe it means is that Paul has started a chain reaction. He started a chain reaction that he was confident would reach everybody in that area. What do I mean by that? He had taught the gospel. He had entrusted it to faithful men who would be faithful to teach it to others. He had set up churches in strategic areas that he was confident would fulfill their jobs and ultimately the gospel would get out. It's like he had Domino set up and started the chain reaction and knew he could walk away trusting that every Domino was going to fall into place. He started it, strategized, planned appropriately, and felt confident. I can leave knowing that the job will be completed in my absence. And I desire that so much for my own life. Whether, whether God ever calls me out of Sonoy or not, if it's just him calling me home to be with him, to be able to look down from heaven and know I started the chain reaction where I was at, and everyone that's supposed to hear the gospel will hear the gospel. Lastly, the plan must be collaborated with other churches. Driven by the gospel, focused on obedience, prioritized on need, collaborated with other churches. What you see here at the end of this chapter is a bunch of churches getting together to reach people with the gospel. He says, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem because these other two churches raise money to help their poor people. Once I get done with there, I want to come to you guys, be encouraged by you, get financial support from you so that I can go to Spain and reach people with the gospel. This church is working together in two areas, finances and prayer. Finances and prayer. He plans to use the Roman church to get to Spain. There's financial aid for Christians that's happening in these churches that don't know each other, that don't live near each other, that don't have the benefit of looking them up on a website and learning about them. They're just told by Paul, hey, there's some Christians in Jerusalem that need your help. They need financial help. And they give. Paul had obviously taught these people the joy of giving. Financial aid for Christians is a part of normal life for a Christian. 
And that's just flowing out of that normal life that we see. And then we see the aspect of prayer in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God and on my behalf. He prays for some different things here. He prays for changed hearts. He wants the, the, the service in Jerusalem to be acceptable to the saints. And he prays for safe travels. He prays that he'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We participate in global plans through prayer. We should never minimize financial support and prayer support for missionaries. That's what Paul appeals to right here in the Roman church. That serves in the context of a church that's uh, conforming to Christ, saturated with the word, instructing others, yielding to the mind. That's the type of church that responds rightly to financial opportunities to help missionaries, to prayer opportunities to assist missionaries. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sobhope.org.